Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Welcome to a new episode of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their history, their journey through the world of martial arts, and, and other stuff they might be involved in. My guest today is a martial artist with belts in numerous styles. Uh, since childhood, he dreamed of working in film and television, even attending filmmaking camp in his youth. As he grew older, he continued with filmmaking, at first with an old Super 8 camera of his father's and later with modern digital technology. After high school, he focused on visual art, earned his BFA in the School of Visual Arts on a full scholarship, and his master's degree from Hofstra University. He was a technical advisor on the series The Human Weapon, and as a stunt performer, he's worked on John Wick's Chapters 2 and 3, The Blacklist, The Punisher, and more. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Stephen Kepfer. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, what's up, Brian? Thanks for having me on, man. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad we were. I know we talked about it for a few months and, and a lot of stuff going on in both our lives, and we were finally able to make it work. So I'm excited about this. Yeah, absolutely. So, like we do with all my guests, we're going to jump back to the beginning. I want to know where that, that first spark, that first interest in martial arts came from. I, I thank my mom for that. She oh. basically, my mom was a professor at City University here, and they had a. Um, a uh, like a you know kind of like a daycare program for kids of faculty and stuff and one of the programs was Shotokan karate so really? she she plopped me into karate daycare you know karate classes while she was teaching and stuff and uh, and that planted the seed you know I think I was like seven or eight or something like that wow and she said I did it for about two years I don't really recall because it's such a blip in my memory but okay. it, it definitely like I wouldn't call myself a Shotokan guy or anything, but mm -hmm. that's that experience is what planted the seed and interest in in it all. You know, wow, and it's, it's interesting. You did two years and and barely a memory of it. That's you know, <laughs> obviously, well, I'm, I'm assuming you yeah. learned a lot in the two years, but and so it's probably still in there somewhere. It's in there. Yeah. I mean, you know, later on when I went on to other stuff, it, there was a familiar a familiarity to the environment and things. You know, but um, okay. I mean, it, it just was a springboard for me, I guess. Nice. Yeah. So before that, did, did you have any like knowledge of martial arts at all? Did you, I mean, did you see it and watch it on TV or anything? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did. I, I knew about it. I was a kid of the 70s. You know, I was born in 68. So, you know, there was definitely a presence on TV and, and you know, and movies and, and things like that. And uh, even cartoons like, you know, like uh, Hong Kong Fooey and Fui, stuff yep. like that. You know? Nice. I, mean, I have a Hong, Hong Kong Fooey bobblehead on my desk still. So it's like. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so I definitely knew about it and I was always interested in it. I wasn't like a lot of my friends were super hardcore into like Kung Fu theater and stuff. And like I watched stuff and mm -hmm. I went to the theaters to see that stuff, but I wasn't like super nerdy about it, you know. Okay. But yeah, it was just always something I was interested in. And then I didn't really come back to it in any kind of serious way till like my late teens you know? oh okay but, um, and then what yeah. led to it that time i think it was you know kind of 
graduating high school, having a real job, being able to pay for it myself kind of stuff, you know, it was like, it was, it was, I think a lot of it was just practicality, you know, like I can do this. I've been wanting to do it and now I have the means to do it, you know? Okay. And what style was that? Uh, taekwondo, of okay. course, you okay. know, it's like, uh, every, every kid in the late eighties, early nineties was doing Taekwondo. So. <laughs> that is true. That is true. So yeah. do you remember what system of Taekwondo it was? What organization? Uh, well, it was interesting. I mean, it, uh, my 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 black belt is WTF. Oh, well, I guess now they just say WT, but it's like, um, you know, it was sort of I started pre-Olympic and I left Taekwondo post-Olympic. So it was a really interesting time to mm-hmm. see see it change. You know, like there were guys in our dojang who are still doing like the Shotokan forms and the old forms and stuff like the pre-WTF forms. And then, um, I mean, one of the reasons I left was I saw it kind of becoming very commercial even back then you know like uh you know my teacher had was opening a chain of schools he had lots of schools and then i remember one time like he kind of chastised us us for making the warm-ups like too difficult and that we were gonna scare new students away and stuff and you got to tone it down like in the earlier days we would have like friday night fight nights and we would just fight you know (laughs) just fight and it was it wasn't with the you know we weren't wearing like what became popular or like the foam dipped pads you know it was more like remember those pads that felt like like socks kind of you know like socks that would go over your knuckles and and shins and stuff you know we were wearing those and then he actually used to teach us some some throwing and and things it wasn't like typical like what you'd see of taekwondo now like mm-hmm. a big part of the warm up was belt wrestling which i always thought was very interesting and then i thought it was just everybody in taekwondo was doing that but then the more i learned i was like oh no a lot of people aren't other people aren't doing this throwing stuff you know so um but that all kind of just ended after a while you know i there's a real palpable change in the dynamic of the school and uh it, the focus became less on um fighting and more on enrollment you know and then eventually i left you know i left before testing he uh wanted me to test for my second degree and then i was just like "Eh, i don't know i knew i was going to leave at that point so i didn't really care about the rank so i just left you know See that school sounds a lot like the traditional taekwondo school i've been at since 94 actually and luckily ours hasn't changed it's obviously they've all changed a little but it hasn't changed drastically we you know we we're, we're still traditional Taekwondo. We still do the the, the Paul Gay forms. Mm-hmm. We've been doing those for quite some time. We mix in Hapkido. We mix in Judo. We mix in Jiu-Jitsu. You know, we do, it's, it, plus we also do tournaments. So it's, it's a mixture and stuff, but it's, yeah, so we have, you know, some of those games like that. I remember doing like the belt wrestling stuff and, and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I, I kind of very, very, very similar. So Yeah. I, I really did enjoy it, you know, and I mean, then, and even though I didn't leave there unhappy, I just, you know, in the sense of unhappy with the place, I just kind of hit a, I think like, like everybody in like 93, I think I left Taekwondo in 95. Okay. And then um, when uh, the big, the big thing was when UFC happened, right. The first ultimate fighting championship, yep. which who knew it would be the, the first, it was just an event, you know? Right. And so I remember we were all gathered around the pay-per-view rooting for all the strikers and stuff and then it was just like whoa mind blown you yeah. know so like now we had to decide do i still keep drinking the kool-aid or do i expand my knowledge or like what's the deal you know so i ended up two years later i was i was gone you know okay it's kind of a combination of the changing culture in in that dojang and then also just opening up of what else was available out there and then of course the growth of the internet was a huge factor in that because you could really see what was out there it wasn't like when you 
first joined a school back in the day, you just believed everything the teacher told you because that was the only resource you had, right. you know? So I definitely want to get to what comes next, but just curious, during your years in Taekwondo, did you get into competition at all, or was that not part of what you wanted to do? Oh, no, I did. I definitely did some okay. competitions, you know, I in fighting and forms, both, you know. I definitely did some of that. I, and, and not just in Taekwondo, I did some NASCA. I was, like, NASCA rated back in the early 90s and stuff. Really? I mean, that was kind of like, you know, before NASCA became – as acrobatic and uh, gymnastic as it is now, but, right? For you know, the forms like, and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Do, did you ever go to any of the big NASCA tournaments, or just the local ones out east? No, just local ones. Okay. I didn't really travel to like do Battle of Atlanta or any of that stuff. I just kind of did the local stuff. Okay, because I went to the Diamond Nationals probably five, six times, mainly just to watch. I had friends competing and stuff, and coaching and cheering them on. But that was that was my first experience with NASCA was the Diamond Nationals, and I think ninety or ninety one. So oh, cool, cool. Definitely, definitely yeah. a different experience. And I remember the first time seeing like those acrobatic musical forms and stuff, and it's definitely, <laughs> definitely different. I mean, it's, it's fun to watch, but yeah, it's definitely very different from what I was used to in traditional martial arts. So. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay. So then what, where did you move to after Taekwondo? Uh, after Taekwondo, I kind of just started searching around for schools, and then I found a Sanchao school here in the city, and then um, it was a, it was a good time. You know, it was a good it was a good next move for me, you know, because it was a bit more realistic fighting. And then we were really incorporating throws into it. There was, there was some rudimentary grappling going on that we did, like ever, that everybody was doing in the mid 90s, unless you came from wrestling or something. But, you know, so by that time and it was a pretty open school, they didn't just do Chinese stuff, although we were doing like, you know, all the typical things that you would get in a in a, a Chinese oriented school with like uh, all our forms and, and things like that. But I was really just there for the fighting, to be honest. And, okay. and then, uh, yeah. So then I had a, um, I trained with them until about 99. And then that one, a bunch of us left pretty disgruntled. There was some unhappiness going on in the school mm-hmm. and things. So like a bunch of us kind of did a mass exodus. And then, but even there, that's where I really cut my teeth and learning how to fight. I think I did my first, it was a Shuto rules fight here in oh. New York. Okay. Right the year that New York banned MMA. So it's like I got in just under the wire. I got a fight in right before they banned it here. Then after that, I had a bunch of kickboxing, like Sancho fights. Okay. And then I started entering grappling stuff, you know, because like, I really learned that I loved grappling. You know, I did the uh, Gene LaBelle's World Grapplers Challenge up in Toronto. We drove. That was my first my first time grappling. I was like, I'm going to go. We're going to Toronto to compete in this thing. <laughs> wow. It was great, man. I, was, I mean, I wasn't like some standout grappler, but, you know, I went one and one and, and I won with a pretty, you know, I won the one that I won was with a submission and I lost the other one on points. So to me, that was just like great. Met a whole bunch of people that really influenced the direction i went in fact one of the the people was oleg taktarov i took a seminar with him and and nice. gene labelle and gokert chevichian right so yeah. those were sort of like the first real grappling coaches that i actually trained with and uh i just fell in love with it you know it's interesting none of them were like jujitsu people yeah Gokar just kind of yeah go car back in 95 i did a seminar with him at the uh, Long Beach Internationals in, in 1995. He's a cool guy. Yeah, totally. So it, it just kind of, you know, it, that I think that experience in 98 really pushed me. And by 99, I found my Sambo coach and the rest is history, you know. Back up a little bit now to yeah. the Taekwondo. What, what level did you did you start teaching and when did teaching kind of become part of what you wanted to do? 
It's a good question. I mean, just generally speaking, my whole life, I've kind of been the teacher guy. Like even as a younger person, I was always kind of like the group leader, the guy who would take charge and make sure everything got done. And like, I'm just like kind of a type A person that way. Okay. But it's like, you know, he had me teaching. I don't, I mean, I don't remember exactly when, but I know I was already teaching by the time the UFC came out. I was already a black belt by then and and running classes and stuff. And then, um, you know, that's always just been something that happens wherever I go. I end up diving in, kind of going all in, and then ending up being really good at explaining things and breaking things down to people in a, in a, well, now as, as a more learned person in a more supportive way. <laughs> Although, you know, when I was younger, I remember in high school, my friend Michelle used to say, like, why do you always have to be so honest? Like, you could, be a little less honest sometimes you know so i still struggle with that sometimes just Mm -hmm. saying what i say and like you'll just deal with it like even if it's a little rude or whatever but i'm better now at that stuff you know college and grad school is like you know that actually answers (laughs) part of my next question i was asked how you think your teaching style has changed over the years i think honestly teaching is what i'm really good at you know like i i I was never a world-class competitor Mm -hmm. you know i was always like a 50 50 guy win some lose some whatever and i was never super addicted to competition but enjoyed it enough to test go out and test myself you know but what i really do enjoy and what i think i'm really good at is coaching and teaching you know you know i think i have an advantage over a lot of other coaches just having gone through sort of the education and everything that i've gone through in um you know, and having taught in my out, my non-martial art life, you know, so I could bring all that. I used to, a lot of people don't know. I, I worked professionally as a uh, pediatric art therapist and oh. in um, hematology, oncology, uh, intensive care. I was taught at, you know, I was a lecturer at a lot of universities and, um, you know, I taught regular classes at school of visual arts for a while in their art therapy program. And then, um, and then having gone to grad school and then, supervising grad students and stuff. Teaching has always been part of my life. So I think a lot of martial art teachers don't learn how to teach properly. They don't understand teaching methods and they'll, you know, it's kind of hit or miss, you know, they learn to teach from who taught them. And sometimes that's good. And sometimes that's bad. And and sometimes people have the awareness to take what was good about how they were taught and discard what was bad about how they were taught. And some people just take the whole ball of wax regardless good and bad you know so like not everybody's a great teacher so and it takes practice you know so i think i'm lucky in that regard that i i have that whole um other life where i really learned how to teach and i definitely bring that to my classes nice very cool so then then back into the the martial arts part of it what was next in your journey then after you know you did the one of the one of the mma fights or type fights in in new york and stuff before they banned it what kind of what came next in your journey uh, yeah, then I did some kickboxing at Sanchao, and then I started doing the grappling tournaments. And then, uh, you know, you know the the one in Toronto. Then I did the um, after that I did the very first Grappler's Quest, which was cool, pretty interesting because that was kind of born out of the the Toronto tournament. The Toronto tournament, the Jean Labelle tournament in Toronto, was great because that was like sort of during the MMA blackout years, you know, and at that time, grappling competitive grappling got really big. Yeah. You know, it wasn't being banned. I don't know if you remember, but they had the contenders on pay-per-view. They had two, only two of them, but they were great. It was like just submission wrestling, Mm -hmm. you know, just submission wrestling on pay-per-view. This is awesome, you know. 
you'd have guys like Dan Henderson and Frank Shamrock and Matt Hume and all these guys, Kenny Monday, all these guys just wrestling for submissions, you know? And then that was also the year ADCC started. And that was the year that Grappler's Quest started. So like 1998 was a pretty pivotal year for the sport grappling community, I would say. And I kind of rode that wave, I guess, and moved right on to Sambo. You know, and it wasn't like I was looking for Sambo. Right. I was just looking to leave where I was training. And a friend of mine said, hey, this uh, this Russian guy is teaching over here. There was there was a place here in the city called Chow's Martial Arts. It was a, a Kung Fu school, but they would also had other teachers teaching out of it. You know, they don't the, the school doesn't exist anymore. But a friend of mine was like, hey, this Russian guy is teaching Sambo over here. We should go check it out. And then uh, I was hooked after one class. I was hooked, you know. Nice. that's what 20 going to be 22 years ago, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And then what led to you uh, deciding to open your own school? <laughs> uh, I, that, that I kind of was pushed into that, but it was okay. like, you know, my, my coach, Alex, who just died recently, actually, um, sorry. 81 years, uh, five days shy of his 81st birthday. Wow. But, um, so he was, you know, he had jumped ship, and from on a, he was here on a business deal in the early 90s as a translator for between some companies an american company and a russian company and and as you recall at that time when the wall fell a lot of people were trying to get out over there or whatever so he came here and and saw his moment and and hit the road you know and so he was he just it's it, it wasn't the soviet union anymore so i don't want to say he defected but he definitely just like took off you know you know and he was former military he was a naval officer and sambo coach you know combat sambo coach and a lot of military experience so he he taught from a very combative point of view you know so everything that we did was half and half like we would do our sports sambo stuff but probably about 50 percent of the stuff we did was knife stick you know like actual fighting kind of thing anyway i was training with him and then he would always say you know, I'm going to go back to Russia one of these days, you know, Steve, you're going to take over. Right. And I would just like, yes, I'm yeah, yeah, sure. I'll do it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I got you. I got you, Alex, whatever. Oh, one day he came in, he goes, okay, I bought my plane ticket. <laughs> he goes, you're going to, you're going to keep going. Right. And I was like, oh, damn. All right. I guess I am, you know, so I did. So I started, I kept the program going, you know, at that time I was working at the medical center in the, you know, in oncology, but at night I started running, I kept the, the Sambo classes going after about two years of that, that was in 2003 when he left mm -hmm. by 2005, like the program was growing. Like I had to make a decision, you know, like if I wanted the, the Sambo program to grow, I was going to have to leave my other job. Like it was, it had grown as much as it would while I was working a day job. You know, I took the gamble. And in 2005, and I, I quit my day job, and I've been making a living doing martial arts ever since. So it was wow. a good gamble. Worked out. I mean, definitely there were some periods of stress and struggle. Mm -hmm. You don't get into this business to get rich, you know. But um, true. But it definitely worked out. So how did uh, COVID affect you? Did you have to completely shut down? Did you switch virtual? How did you handle that? Um, yeah. Well, we had to shut down for a bit. Okay. I I didn't do the virtual thing because. Okay. Can I can I use profanity on this podcast? I, I can, thought yeah. the virtual thing was complete BS. Like okay. it, it was I always look at the I always try to I was like, nobody's going to do grappling classes virtual. True. And I don't really run a kid's program. And all my friends that had uh, schools that did the virtual thing pretty much told me in retrospect, it was a big failure, except for the kids programs where the, the computer screen became like a babysitter. Yeah. 
But other, other than that, it was like, it wasn't going to work. So, you know, the writing was on the wall. I, I'm always trying to look for the glass half full situation. Mm-hmm. You know, while everybody was just running to Zoom to do streaming, I, I was just like, no, I'm, I, need, I need a way to make money and I need a way to still honor my students who are supporting us and give them something too. Like you can kill two of those birds with one stone if you're creative about it. And so I set up a streaming channel, like an on-demand channel, free for all my students, 10 bucks a month for anybody else who wanted to subscribe to it. Nice. And I would put up two videos a week. And uh, I've been doing two videos a week since last March, since March of 2020. So now we've got hundreds of videos up there. And basically what how it started was... You know, we knew we were going to be told to shut down. The writing was on the wall. So my, my a friend of mine uh, uh, who runs uh, Park Slope BJJ here, my friend Mark, we got together and recorded a bunch of lessons in advance, like just started recording lessons with each other. You know, he would use them for his stuff and I would use them for my stuff. And we made an agreement like they would be exclusive to our guys. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, we wouldn't just put them up on YouTube or whatever. Right. So recorded a bunch of those. And then I also had uh, bunches of seminar footage that I never had published before and things like that. So I probably had about, remember the time when they were like, oh, we're going to close for two weeks and see what happens. Like, so we were just like, all right, I got enough to last like a month. I got enough content and then we'll reopen and I can start putting up new, fresh, uh, fresh content. That's not on my YouTube, like exclusive stuff. And so <laughs> we didn't reopen so quickly. Right. So I had to get creative. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm running out of seminar footage. I'm running out of lessons. I'm running out of all this stuff. And I have subscribers now. So like I'm obligated, right? So what I did was I have probably like 20 years of grappling matches, MMA fights, you know, like you name it, content, uh, stuff that I've recorded of our team members and, and just going to events and stuff. So I started creating breakdown videos. And so I started, um, I probably have about now, and I called them coach sessions. And this is where my filmmaking side of me really was helpful because I was able to go in, edit, do slow-mo, put animated like arrows and, you know, like stuff like that. And just really break down fights and talk the viewer through the fights and the matches and say, maybe he should have done this. Maybe he should have done that. Do like analysis, like color commentary. And uh, so I did about 70 of those. So there's about 70 of those on, on the channel now. Then eventually we got to reopen again. So now what we do is we put two, we record all the instructional portions of my classes and we put two up a week. So anybody who's, you know, we get a lot of people come through our gym from around the world and, and stuff. And like there, people always ask, like, you know, do you guys have affiliate programs or anything like that? And I'm like, nope, no affiliations, no certifications. I don't really believe in any of that bullshit, but if you want to see what we're doing, you can subscribe to this channel and we put the instructional portions up twice a week. So we've been doing that since we reopened back in uh, April, I guess, or okay. something like that. Wow. And so, yeah, the channel's actually really grown into like a pretty cool thing. And then back to your original question, mm-hmm. like while everybody else was doing Zoom for free, I was actually making money off of people subscribing to nice. see this stuff. And my students were still getting free content. So I it was just like, Something that I always wanted to do, mm-hmm. like I know, like Marcelo Garcia has MG in action, you know, they put all their classes up and people could subscribe and the students get it for free. You know, Eric Paulson has the same thing for his a similar thing for his organization. You know, they put up content that's available to all the members of the organization. And I always kind of wanted to do that, but I was a little lazy to actually get it started, you know. 
So COVID gave me the time and inclination to do it. So I think that happened. That's the whole reason I started this show. I've been this show. I've been in the back of my mind as a radio show since the mid '90s, and had tried to get this show on radio stations. And finally, when COVID hit, I'm like, I'm just going to do it as a podcast. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. COVID, yeah. COVID gave birth to a lot of podcasts for sure. That's true. That is, true. and a lot of them have come and gone. I mean, it's it's yeah, crazy. But I'm glad this one's still going. So, now you you mentioned filmmaking. So, talk a little bit about how you then you were able to to blend your your love of martial arts and your love of filmmaking and, and start doing that. I know, like I mentioned in the intro, the Human Weapon and John Wick and the Blacklist and the Punisher and stuff like that. Talk a little bit about how how that happened. Yeah, yeah. Well. I mean, you did mention like that I was interested in filmmaking since childhood, which I was. I mean, I actually thought that was going to be my career back in the day. You know, like I was definitely a creative kid. I came from a family of cops and firemen and soldiers, basically. Oh. So I'm kind of the first one to not be that person, you know, but I had very extremely supportive parents. They my dad didn't care that I wasn't going to follow his footsteps into the fire department, I, although he was still, you know, he was still a fireman and he would always throw out the, uh, you know, you should take the exams, the civil service exams, you know, like <laughs> just in case, just in case, you know. But I was like, I don't know, you know, and I remember my uncle who my uh, he's my great uncle, but he was like a vice president of a bank. I remember over dinner one night I had gotten a scholarship to go to school of visual arts. And he's like, oh, that's really great. But like, how are you going to bring home the bacon? <laughs> he was like, <laughs> you know, so but my parents were very supportive. And um, so I was just always making stuff and creating stuff and, and filming stuff and you know, first on film and then eventually on camcorders and like whatever, you know, mm -hmm. just always making stuff. You know, I was also a musician. So there was a time like sort of when I was younger, where I was going to decide visual art or music, you know, because I played in bands like up all through college. And then I kind of stopped and when I went to grad school, I play piano, you know. Okay. So I chose visual art and then um, I went to school of visual arts with the intention of becoming a filmmaker i wasn't in the film program I, I went in for advertising got my bachelor of fine arts in advertising but i figured i'll learn how to make commercials two minute films you know 30 second films like whatever you know it would be an entry into the industry right but along the way i uh i learned about art therapy and i fell in love with that and i fell in love with working with with people you know and um so that kind of took me on that detour for a bunch of years but even so like martial arts brought me back to, you know, it's to your original question is martial arts brought me back to television and film okay. and really, I guess, started by YouTube, like in 2005 or 2006, YouTube was launched and I started a channel, just started uh, putting up Sambo instructional things, you know, and and that's how people actually found me. I mean, that's how really. Yeah, yeah. I, I even like Boss Rutten had a, a short lived website back in the day mm -hmm. called MMA Today. And I was producing some content for that. I just started making videos. I mean, you know, technology just made it so easy back then compared to like, you know, when I went to the filmmaking camp when I was a kid and we were like editing on these gigantic Betamax, you know, decks and stuff. And it was like YouTube just made it so simple. And then uh, eventually the technology, as you know, improved and improved. And I just kept making content. Human Weapon, which was 2007, they found me through YouTube. Right. So I can thank YouTube for my first real job in television. And then that kind of just started the ball rolling, it just kept going from there. And then I would do more and then do bigger and then do a little bigger and a little better and a little more different types of stuff, not just instructional stuff, but like some narrative stuff and then some more documentary stuff. And then, 
you know how it is. Then your network grows and then you start collaborating with people. And then before you know it, you're in the industry. And yeah, so that's that's how it happened. I mean, that's how I got into stunts. It was like I had in 2014, I produced a short film for a student of mine who used to fight for me. And then he his name is Sean Fitzgerald. And uh, he went to film school and then uh, ended up moving to L.A., became like, a, you know, a PA in television, mm-hmm. but was writing a, uh, a show, a pilot for a show that he wanted to pitch. And it was based on um, uh, underground MMA fighting in New York because we were still the last state where it was banned. Yeah. And um, he hit me up and he was like, hey, man, you want to produce my uh, proof of concept? And because at that time I had just finished producing my first documentary called New York Mixed Martial Arts, which now everybody can see on my for free on my Vimeo, but it was on Hulu for many years. I got really lucky. We produced a documentary all about the ban on MMA in New York, and it has also a nice, it's a good primer on MMA history too. That got on Hulu. We are really lucky. We got distribution. Like you've, it's, you're very lucky to get distribution and get picked up on your first film. You know, it's like, like almost never happens, but we did. So like, so Sean was like, Hey, big time producer, you want to do my, my pilot, you know, my content, my, my proof of concept. And I was like, yeah, sure. So we raised, we raised some money and we shot a 10 minute film called choke artist. And, uh, we got uh, a former student and friend of mine, Al Iaquinta, who, you know, from the UFC, Uh, I've known Al since he's like 16 or something like oh, that. Wow. I used to teach at the gym where he trained out in Long Island okay. uh, before he was with uh, Sarah, Matt Sarah Longo. You know, it's like, so he had expressed interest in trying out some acting. So we cast him in the proof of concept. And then um, he started talking about it during UFC press conferences and stuff, you know. And then when we finally finished it, Fox Sports did a, uh, a piece on it. And we gave Fox uh, exclusivity to screen it on their website. And then that got it seen by um, Darren Aronofsky's office. So, so people who don't know him, that he's like big time director, did like Black Swan, Noah, uh, the wrestler. So we got called in to have a couple of meetings because he was considering doing a TV series. So we had like uh, two or three meetings with him. I mean, the show went nowhere, like a lot of these things, but uh, not with him, but with his people. But one of the things that happened was I had choreographed a fight for the proof of concept. And I met during these meetings, his uh, stunt coordinator. And so his stunt coordinator was like, you should really consider stunts, man. And then, then, then something clicked. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. Why did I never think of this? Like, I love <laughs> I love fighting and stuff. I love martial arts. I love all that. And I love filmmaking. And I love I've never even considered like there is a place where those two worlds kind of meet, you know? And so in 2014, I was just like, uh, all right, I'm all in on this stunt thing. I'm going to try and do this, you know, and the rest is history. And owning a gym in New York City is is really helpful because stunt performers need places to train too, and and spaces at a premium in the city. So it's kind of been part of the identity, become part of the identity of our studio now is like a place where stunt people and, and actors will come to train and learn their fight skills and things like that. Very cool. So I got to ask, the the Punisher, was it the movie or the uh, TV series? It was the first season of the TV series oh, from Marvel. Nice. Yeah, okay, yeah. so you're yeah. you're part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'm just a cop running and chasing chasing Punisher through an, a hotel. You know, episode ten, you'll barely see me. It's like it's like a drinking game. Yeah, fine, you fine. You know, with the stunt guys, it's like that's still pretty. I was, so, so were you yeah. a Marvel fan before that? 
No, not a rabid fan. Okay. I mean, you know, I, I definitely was aware of things and I'd read some stuff growing up and, and things like that. But uh, I definitely wasn't like on the nerd level fan. <laughs> so not like me then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, my buddy, my partner, my kind of my stunt partner, uh, Paul Veracci, who we kind of he's been a student of mine for many, many years, but he also kind of jumped in on the stunt thing with me we both have kind of been doing the the stunt performer path together. Uh, he's a massive, massive fan of that okay. stuff. So, and then before he got in the union uh, as a stunt performer, his in was, he was a security PA for Marvel here in New York city. Mm -hmm. So he worked on every single show, all of them. He worked on all five of the shows, Jessica Jones, oh, wow. Punisher, Daredevil. And then once he got in the union, he actually got some work on them too, you know, doing stunts. But before that he was just a security guy, you know, okay. But it was a great hustle for him. He got to meet everybody, got to know everybody, got to understand set culture. It's like it was a super valuable experience. It's really cool. Now, if someone approaches you and they're thinking of getting involved in martial arts. What are some tips you give them, you know, what to look for, what to avoid in, in instructors and in schools? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good question. It's a common question, but it, 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 there's no one answer. You know, it's like the first thing I always say is don't base your decision on geography. Like a lot of people choose whatever's closest to them just because yep. it's closest to them. So I'm like, take geography. That should be like the last factor. You know, that should be sort of like you've checked out a bunch of places where geography was not a factor. And now you've tried classes at, at you know, let's say five or six different places. And then you kind of look at that list. All right. What's the tops on my list? Now you can start looking at like geography, like, well, Okay, choice B is closer, so I could probably attend more than choice A, which is further away or whatever. But, but definitely geography shouldn't be your first, your first uh, factor. Then I would say people need to seriously consider why they want to train in the first place. You know, like that's a big question and that'll determine where you go. I have no, I know a lot of people will, will you know, kind of fall on, especially those like us that are into you know more of the combative sports communities and or where people are fighting for real and stuff like that like they'll kind of poo-poo like more rec recreational like programs and i i don't have an issue with that like not everybody's going to be an mma fighter not everybody's going to be a kickboxer or competitive grappler or whatever there's a lot more involved in that choice than that in fact i think that's the least amount of it because you're not going to be an mma fighter forever you know like i actually don't even consider mma guys martial artists i just think of them as fighters mm -hmm. i said it's like we'll find out if you're a martial artist when you keep training after your fight career is done like are you really all in on the training and the community that you're a part of because then you're kind of like a martial artist but if right now if it's just like I train when I have a fight coming up and then I get fat and lazy when I don't have a fight coming up. You're not a martial artist. You're just a fighter. So I think understanding your goal, like why you, you want to train, what you're looking for, uh, which is easier said than done, but at least you should think about it, you know, and then try out different places. And one of the things I, I always say is uh, how many senior people are there? Literally talk to people how long you've been here. You know, if you've got a room full of rookies, that, that could be a red flag. You know, unless you're in a quote unquote beginner class or something like that. But generally speaking, if if you don't have senior people in the room, that means people didn't really want to stick around that place. You know, so you don't want to jump into a revolving door. So definitely check out like uh, the sort of um, hierarchy of people there. 
definitely feel out the community of and the culture of that place, whether you feel comfortable in it, you know, there's no one answer to that. But what I would say is that that room that you train in that mat is a microcosm of the world of your world and how you behave in there and how you learn how to overcome struggle and challenge in there is going to translate to how you do that in life. And you want to be able to, you, you need to be in in an environment where you feel comfortable enough to take risks, to allow yourself to be vulnerable and to put yourself in situations that you will absolutely lose. Like, you know, you will not win this scenario because you don't know anything yet. You're not supposed to, but a lot of people are afraid of that, you know, so you need to be comfortable to comfortable enough to be vulnerable. And that's super important in a place. Style is less relevant. That's more about what you want to do. You know, like, do you want to do kendo? Do you want to, do you want to do sword work? Do you want to do fencing? Do you want to do, you know, Filipino stick stuff? You know, like the options are all, there's so many options for like what you want to do. Right. But the common denominator is the community that you're going to try and be a part of. Like, is that a community you want to be a part of, you know? And the only way you're going to do that is to try out different classes. And if they're trying to hook you in, right, you know, like, here's my sales pitch. Somebody comes in to take a trial class at our studio. And when the class is over, I'm like, thanks so much for coming. I hope you had a great time. If you want to come back, I'll see you soon. And so many people are expecting the hard sell. Yep. And I'm like, listen, dude, I don't want a student that I have to convince to join here. Right. I want you to join here because you want to join here because you like the feeling here. You like the people here. You like the training here. So, you know, I just tell people if they hit you up with the hard sell, just walk on out. Just walk right out. That's you know? great. I love that. Yeah. And it was actually kind of funny because my last guest, uh, I think that I had, I think it was location should be the most important so it's like you can see everyone has a different opinion <laughs> so it's, it's that's why i like i like having this gives people different options on, on you know kind of take whichever person you think gave the best advice you know take a sure. mi- mixture of it and and go find a school so i mean you know what it is is like location certainly is important yeah i just don't think it's the most important like when we when when sort of things started opening up again after covid you know, I've been wanting to do kendo forever, probably since childhood, like probably since I saw some documentary on Star Wars where they were talking about kendo and Kurosawa and all this stuff is based on Japanese swordsmanship. And and like I've never formally studied it. OK. And it's something I've always wanted to do. So like coming out of covid, like a lot of people, I was said I thought to myself, I'm going to devote some more time to myself than I was doing before. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to work myself ragged like I used to. and um. So that included, I'm going to find a kendo dojo and start training kendo. I want to do that. So definitely, like with my crazy schedule, like location was an issue. Right. You know what I mean? But I still knew that I wanted to do it for myself. I wanted to see if there was a, like, a, you know, you know, there were a whole bunch of personal goals I had and none of which had to do with anything other than like no aspirations to compete in kendo, although I'm not opposed maybe someday if I'm good enough, but Mm -hmm. like no aspirations for that. I have zero aspirations to gain rank in kendo. I have just want to be in a place and start learning a new skill under qualified people in a community that I feel comfortable with, you know? I think think location's a bigger factor when it comes to kids and parents having to get them there and adults who have previous martial arts experience then location you know maybe doesn't maybe makes a little bit of a difference or maybe not so because if if you're an experienced martial artist and you want to learn a certain style you're going to go wherever you need to go 
And yeah, if you're yeah, a, yeah. if you're a parent and you have to bring your kid to five different activities plus martial arts, location is going to be a bigger, bigger factor than it might be for a 19 year old kid starting for the first time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you if you're picking the, the kids up at school and you got to get them to here before you go over there, like for sure, it's a, yeah. it's a factor. But in most since I don't have a kids program and most of the people I see coming in are young adults, like right. I, the youngest that we have is like, you know, we'll have like um, teenagers if they're mature enough. But okay. um, perfect most of the people that I deal with are paying their own way, kind of like me <laughs> paying right. their own way. There and you that's, go. you know, they're, they're wanting to do this and find a community. Nice. So. And normally this is a spot where I ask people, you know, traditional martial artists, their, their thoughts on MMA. We've kind of talked about MMA quite a bit. I'm curious, switched up a little bit. What are your thoughts on weight cutting in MMA? Yeah, I have a love hate relationship with MMA in general. Yeah. I was like very into it in the early days but that wasn't really MMA. That was an HB. Right. I'm, I'm not that into MMA now, honestly. Like my students will come in and be like, did you watch this fight or that fight? I'm like, who? What? No, I don't care anymore. Same you know, here. Like, like I kind of, you know, once we got MMA, I was really invested in the, um, the fight for legalization here in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, once we got it, I kind of just left. You know, I made this decision. I wasn't going to train fighters anymore. Okay. We cut out our MMA program in the gym. And uh, I had a few guys that were still fighting and like, I'm going to coach them until they're done. Oh. And then I'm not taking any new fighters. Um, so it's not that I have anything against MMA. It just doesn't get me excited anymore. Right now. It's just kind of like big business and like, whatever. I don't really care. Like rankings don't mean anything. I don't feel like I can follow the stories of fighters like I used to in the early days where I knew every single guy fighting. And now it's kind of like why I still prefer the amateur fights more because I get more stories there. I can follow people to your question about weight cutting. It's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. It's um, it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, there's a lot of problems with the regulation of the sport overall, like particularly with uh like some of the matches that are approved by various match by, by various commissions. I, I just shake my head. Like, how does this, how did this match get approved when it comes to weight cutting? I really feel that like in the best world, you know, it would be great if everybody just fought at their natural weight, but that's never going to happen. That's like a fantasy. So um, I think I don't get why not though. That makes so much sense. It's never, made, it totally. It, yeah. Cause it's never made sense to me. You weigh 195, but you're going to fight at 160, but then you're going to cut all this weight and then gouge yourself on food for 24 hours before you fight. And you're actually going to weigh 190 when you walk into the cage. So why not just fight at 190? No, I agree. I agree. But the thing is, once you, once you move away from sort of an NHB model to yeah. a, a sort of codified sport model, you know, and, and you can see the evolution, right? The UFC and, and the IFC and all the old the old events, you know, okay, there is no no weight classes. Then eventually they were like, all right, well, we got to have at least like two or three weight classes. And once you make those dividing lines, people will try to yeah. meet the one that gives them a better advantage. Exactly. You know what I mean? And then it just goes from there. I mean, I would not be opposed to something like what you have in, in wrestling now where, but the thing, you know, where you, somebody had, you have your baseline weight and you can't go X amount of pounds above it or X amount of pounds below it. So whatever you start the the season with, you're in that window, but you know, MMA doesn't happen in seasons. Yeah. So it's like, but I would, I don't know what the solution to it is. I would love to see same day weigh-ins. I mean, you weigh in two hours before yeah. you fight. No, I, I support it. I support that too. And actually, you know, the argument against it is too many people will get injured, you know, trying to having to fight dehydrated or mm-hmm. XYZ or whatever. 
And my answer to that is that's how you learn not to do that. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's 100%. like hundred percent. You you let it happen. Let people get smashed. Let pe- let the doctor tell them, nope, you can't fight today because you're way too dehydrated or X Y Z. And then eventually that behavior will stop. Yep. You know. Agreed. Fingers so, crossed. Maybe maybe we'll see it in our lifetime. I don't. I'm not holding my breath, but you never know. No, I I don't know. I mean, yeah. I don't think it'll ever, you know, whatever, whatever rules are created, people will figure out ways to game the rules. That's just human nature. So I think we'll always be struggling with, with the issue in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Unfortunately, I agree. So, so in all your years of martial arts, can you pick one martial artist that you truly admire put on the top of your list? Mm, I can pick more than one, but I mean, (laughs) most people can maybe one or two, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be someone you've actually trained with either. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I really really uh, for tops tops would be my coach, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, like of course, most people don't know who he is or anything about him, but he w- w- was the most inspirational for me. You know, I've been so lucky to meet and train with people, and I'm just going to stick with people that I've actually trained with. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are definitely like there are people that I look at their careers and say, "Damn, that's like like the Ree brothers, right?" Oh yeah, yep. like those guys. That I just look at their career and I'm like, "Dude, Best of the Best" was one of my favorite movies, like growing up. And so now it's like, look at where they are now; it's amazing. Or like Gene LaBelle would be somebody that I never met that I aspire to be like that guy. You know, like he's, I feel like a, you know, like grappler, martial artist, uh, stunt man, like just like kind of, you know, he's that guy. He's like, he's the, the icon yeah, for, legendary, you know, he's, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I would say definitely probably of people I haven't met, or I should say I've met Gene LaBelle twice, but people I haven't trained with uh, would be LaBelle for sure. Perfect. Like, nice. I, I think he's the number one. Oh yeah. Yeah. I met him at that same tournament that I met, uh, um, go-kart at back in 95. Gene was there doing some refing and stuff. So I got to say hi to him and get my picture taken with him and him and go-kart and Benny, the jet were there. So that was kind of fun to meet some of those guys, but so, yeah, Benny, the jets, another one, man. Yeah. He's another, he's another one. I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't know. Like I, I'm not on the Bruce Lee bandwagon. Yeah. I have nothing against Bruce Lee, but I wasn't, I mean, I had his poster up in my bedroom when I was a mm-hmm. kid, you know, the nunchucks poster, like, nice. like whatever. But it's like, I, I just look at him. I, I don't put him up on the pedestal that a lot of people do, yeah. you know? So I, th- I think the legend has grown a lot bigger than the actual guy. Like not that he wasn't influential and not that he wasn't revolutionary in some ways, but it's not like, you know, people give him this moniker as like the father of MMA or whatever. I'm like, not, no, not really, dude. I don't, I don't think so. The guy wasn't even about fighting, you know, like sport fighting at all. Like MMA is, is about, it's a sport, right? You know, people forget like, no, MMA is not anything but a sport. You know, it's it's and it wasn't something that Bruce Lee was was like, would he like it? Probably. I don't know. But it wasn't like he was out there pushing rule sets and trying to get people to compete in sport stuff. It was doing the opposite. You know, it's like so he's definitely not the father of MMA. But what he was was a progressive thinker. And that absolutely is true. But I still I would put Gene LaBelle closer to being like the father of MMA than than Bruce, just because LaBelle actually was fighting in mixed match events you know and and, yeah. and put in and actually testing himself that way i think many would agree with you on that one so yeah, yeah. so in all your years then is there a, a philosophy or two you've learned in martial arts that are really important to you maybe you still teach them in your school or just you come back to them in your own personal life a philosophy i i yeah i always try to i mean i kind of talked a lot about it about the culture that should be in that room mm-hmm. you know 
but I, I would say that at least as a coach, and then I bring this into my everyday life, even like uh, when I'm working in non-martial art environments, but I always, I never try to end an experience with somebody without saying something positive to them about them. Okay. Right. So if you take that back to martial arts, you know, you could have, you know, you have some people who have really great learning curves and some people who don't, some people who pick stuff up faster and some people who don't, but it's super important that before they leave the room, you tell them something they did really well. And that's on you to figure that out as a right. teacher. No, you know what I mean? Yeah. But they cannot leave the room. Like I'll, I will yell at people and criticize all during the class, mm -hmm. but it's also my job to, to see what they are doing well and what they're making improvements on and let them know that I see it. You know what I mean? I just always feel that if nobody should walk out my door without hearing a compliment about something that they did, they, they need reinforcement that they did something well. And that takes the, I do that in all my life nice. in every aspect of my life. It's like, that's, it doesn't cost you anything to be kind to people, right. you know? And so if I would say the, the meaning of life, the one philosophy is just don't be an asshole. Nice. That's it. Is, just don't like be, when, don't when you be do that to asshole. people, you can tell the people who don't, get compliments that often just by the reaction they get when you give them one yeah absolutely yeah absolutely like, wow <laughs> i was i was working with two actors this week that they had asked could i help them shoot a, a fight scene you know just for for their reels or whatever and so uh we the last couple of weeks we've been working out the choreography and then we shot a previs this week uh for those who don't know a previs is basically like a visual storyboard you know kind of like a rough cut of what the of what the fight might actually look like. So we shoot it and edit it. And then it's kind of like when we go on set for the actual shoot, we're going to do the actual shoot after Christmas. Then we have this rough cut that we did. We know what shots we need. We know kind of how we want the fight to look. So it make, it saves you a lot of time on, on set. Okay. But anyway, we shot the previs. And one of the things they, they mentioned was like, God, you keep telling us we're doing a good job. <laughs> I'm like, well, you, you are. You're doing a good job. What do you want me to do? Want me to yell at you, find something you did wrong? Like, yeah, we can do things better. Your, your, your punches could look less like a dancer and more like a fighter. But I've told you that already, you know, but you've also done some really good stuff today. So, yes. you know, and that's how they and that's how people they want that, you know, if you give them compliments and they want to do well they want to improve even more. It, it gives them motivation. It's not, it's just motivation to do better for themselves. Like I didn't find them and say, Hey, you guys want to shoot a fight scene. They wanted to do this. So like, I have to encourage them to keep doing it. And the only way to do that is to, to let them know they're doing well. Nice. So this one, you know, so, some, some of my guests have an answer. Some don't cause you, you, you were a kid of the seventies and eighties. <laughs> you have a martial, a favorite martial arts video game. Oh my gosh. Were you, were you a game, um, gamer at all? <laughs> I was raised on games. My first game was Pong, <laughs> Atari Pong, and I, I moved along with everybody else. But nice. yeah, Punch Out was pretty. Mike Tyson's Punch okay. Out, uh, Mike Tyson, that was a pretty fun one. I don't know. I like my video game. I was more about the shooters. Okay. I wasn't really a, a button masher kind of guy. Okay. Like even when the UFC games came out and the Pride game and stuff, I was like, I got bored of that stuff really fast. You know, the stuff that I liked when I was a kid was more like. Um, pitfall on atari you know it's like oh this is like indiana jones you know it's like that kind of stuff yeah. um the star wars game is an all-time favorite of mine i love Pitfall. oh love yeah pitfall's a great game so yeah i wasn't into the fighting games too much you know okay that's good well, hey punch punch out we'll go with that for that that's, that's a good yeah one. for sure but favorite martial arts tv show and it can't be uh, can't be one you worked on <laughs> no no i mean i'd say well more contemporary probably like i really really 
I don't know if it's a full on martial arts TV show, but Gangs of London oh, was cool. incredible. Okay. The fighting in that show is incredible. Like if if people haven't watched that show, they need to watch that show. And then Warrior. Yeah, Warrior's really good. Warrior's good. There was only one season of it, but on Amazon there was um Jean-Claude Van Johnson. Did you watch it? No, I didn't. You you have to watch it's one season, it's Van Damme playing himself. And um it didn't get renewed for a second season. But it is hysterical. It's hysterical. And I'll, I'll just give you the, the sort of the log line is that Jean-Claude plays himself. Mm-hmm. And but he's really an international assassin. And his code name is Jean-Claude Van Johnson. So like all the travels he's done through his entire career to all these different places in the world were all cover for hits that he was going to do. That's right? awesome. So it's such a great show. And it's about him coming out of retirement, okay. you know. And making fun of himself. I love when um, when actors make fun of themselves. Yeah. I love it. I'm definitely and so adding, he, adding that to my list. <laughs> you have to. You will love it. Like I watch my friend and I watch it with his son, who's like at the time it's like eighteen or nineteen, and like didn't quite understand all the humor. Okay. But anybody who grew up watching eighties martial arts movies, you will totally love this. You will love this. Nice. I will find it this week then. So all right, next one. Favorite martial arts movie. Uh, you well, you mentioned, uh, you know, best of the best, best of the best. Of yeah. Yeah. Best of the best was definitely like from the eighties. I, that movie was pretty, uh, it was one of those ones I had on VHS that I would just watch over and over again. Yep. James Earl Jones's motivational speeches in that, in that movie are just so amazing. Good. Yeah. 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 But I, I guess if you, have you seen Throwdown by Johnny Toe? I don't think so. Uh, check that one out. Okay. It's it's amazing. It's probably like 12 or 13 year old years old now, but or maybe 10. It's it's a Hong Kong movie, but it's all judo. Okay. It's probably the best grappling movie made ever. Oh. Oh yeah, we just found it in 2014. Okay. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. The 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 grappling in that they, you know, I will say this, it's better than like the grappling in John Wick. It's better than Wow. Definitely better than Red Belt. I thought Red Belt sucked. Okay. I hated that movie. But um oh my god, it just dragged on. I had such high expectations for it, but it was it was a letdown. It was pretty trope. I was like, eh, whatever. So um but throwdown, so good. Okay. So good. Another great one is um have you seen Fighter in the Wind? Oh, I love that movie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Fighter yeah. in the Wind is like one of my all time favorites. Yeah. No, my my tech would start to turn me on to that one years ago when I found the a bootleg on on eBay and order the DVD and yeah, it's such a good and so you know the fact that it's a true story and stuff. It's just such a good movie. Yeah, 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 totally. I don't know. I have a lot. I have a lot. Like, but those Throwdown and Fighter in the Wind probably up there. John Wick one, the first John Wick was just like kind of a mind blower. Yeah, I was Ooh. like, oh my god, somebody's doing fight choreography with the kind of stuff that I like. That's nice. amazing. Nice. Because I was never into like like I said, I was never like all in on the. The kind of like uh, kung fu type Hong Kong type choreography, yeah, the you know that style. very, yep. yeah, the very metronome like ba 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 ba. I, I respect it; it's amazing. Yeah, and I love Jackie Chan because he didn't exactly do that. Right. You know what I mean? But like, I don't really get into that stuff and like the like the Matrix type stuff. I mean, like Matrix was was a great movie and it was so revolutionary, like for the American film industry by bringing all the wire work and everything from Hong Kong to here. Right. And it was cool, but like I was never into that stuff to begin with, you know. So I, I like more gritty stuff. Okay. I like like way of the way of the gun, you know, like movies like that. Yes. Nice. 
All right, and, and final one, and this one I'm curious about since you're a film guy yourself, is there a movie, it doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, but what movie or do you think had the most realistic martial arts fight scene? Hmm. Wow, that's a good question. Generally, none of them are, I mean, generally realistic is boring. I mean, but when it comes to like being close to realism or at least using technique that kind of is legit technique, but maybe all strung together in, you know, like, like John Wick would be example, right? Like all the stuff mm-hmm. he does is like actual technique, but it's the way they string it together is would never happen. Right. But it feels viscerally real because that is like real stuff, you know? Yeah. I don't know what would be, what would be the most, you know, I, I'll tell you this. I was at a press screening for warrior, mm-hmm. you know, the, with the two brothers that were fighting each other. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was great. It was like, um, we're in this theater in Times Square. It's an advanced screening. And so nobody really had seen the movie yet. And there really hadn't been a good MMA movie yet. Right. You know what I mean? And then, you know, you're like 30 or 40 minutes into the movie and there's no fighting going on. It's like a legit drama, mm-hmm. you know, you know, typical underdog fighter story with the alcoholic, you know, terrible dad and like whatever the stories. It's it's a genre story. But that first fight scene against Mad Dog when uh, they need to find a quick opponent and he happens to be in the gym and then they go in and he just demolishes the champion like in, in 30 seconds. Like I remember the whole audience like just stood up and started cheering. I, and that's, I it was like, wow, that's the first real kind of like MMA fight I've seen on screen. So I'll, I'll say warrior. Okay. That's I'll, that'll be my answer for you. That's a good one. Well, Steven, I just want to thank you, man. This has been a lot of fun. I mean, so we, we chatted online quite a bit and I didn't, didn't know, you know, little, knew a little bit about you from reading the bio, but it's, you definitely had an, an amazing life and, and continue to, to do that when you run your school and everything. But just seriously, thank you. It's, it's been such an honor to have you on the show. Oh, my pleasure, man. I, I'm glad to do it. It's, it's fun. I, I dig your show. Ever since I saw the, you know, you, I don't even know how I got turned on to your show, actually, but I've listened to a bunch of them. Yeah, I know someone you knew, I think, was on one of my episodes or something. And that's oh, Maybe I, it was Adrian Paul. Maybe it was okay. Adrian Paul. Could have been. Maybe. Could have been. But no, I, yeah. I seriously appreciate it. And and send me links for anything you want to put in the show notes for your, your martial arts school, your movie studio you have, whatever whatever you want me to promote on there, I'll add it in the show notes. And if if all goes well, this episode should be out in probably about two weeks. So cool, we'll be celebrating the new year. <laughs> hey, yeah, you actually might be yeah, the yeah. first one of the new year. I got to look at the calendar, but you you might be it. So, but once awesome. again, I appreciate your time and, and look forward to, uh, to talking to you again. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.